0: Hi, I'm Olesa Pindak, the Chief Content Officer here at Mind Body Green. Our guest today is Noor Zibda, a functional and integrative dietitian who helps patients discover the root cause of their health conditions and what to eat to feel their best. Noor is particularly well-versed in the areas of digestive disorders, such as SIBO, thyroid imbalances, hormone imbalances, autoimmune diseases, food sensitivities, chronic fatigue, migraines, and chronic pain, and how all those relate. While her education was in traditional nutrition, Noor's own experience with digestive issues, fatigue, and joint pain as a mother of young children helped her realize that everything is connected and prompted her to take a more holistic approach with her own health and that of her patients. Noor is also the author of two books, The Complete Acid Reflux Diet Plan and The Detox Way, featuring recipes to help you feel energized, focused, and empowered. Welcome to the podcast, Noor. Thanks for having me. Well, we are so excited to talk to you. Gut health is something that's so interesting. It's so interesting to us, it's so interesting to our audience, and we're going to get into all kinds of interesting aspects to it. But before we begin, can you tell us a bit about your own personal story and how you became interested in gut health to begin with?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So my background is I actually grew up in the Middle East in Jordan. So I came to the US at 20. And I've, um, funny enough, I started in dentistry school overseas. You, from 18, you start into medical dentistry. I realized it's not where my passion is. And so I ended up in in school, started doing nutrition, and I kind of loved it. I've always had an interest in health and nutrition. Graduated, started my practice, got my master's degree, but it was a very conventional, typical food, you know, portions, eat this, you know, calorie counting kind of thing. For some reason, the universe kept sending me IBS patients, and I Mm. didn't know what to do with them. And so I had to learn to help them because I, I just can't tell somebody I can't help you and so started learning and um, my personal journey is I was having I had I was a mom of two young kids and I was having headaches and brain fog a little bit of bloating so I was like what's going on I'm eating healthy and I can't help myself a little bit of joint pain and and so I did food sensitivity testing and I found out that I was a completely new person a month down the road and you know as a mom like you you're working you come home and I wanted to do things with my kids I wanted to get out and play and go to the park I didn't want to be too tired and lay down on the couch it wasn't my idea or vision of health and motherhood and you know overall health and so with that discovery it sort of led me to a world of like functional medicine I remember my first conference in New York and it was on integrative nutrition and it's the first time I meet some of the amazing speakers and some of them who are contributors for Mind Body Green, and it was like, wow, what is this world? So it took years. It's like it's a steep learning curve, but I, I love it. I'm very passionate about it, and like a lot of people who are into this, whether it's for their own personal journey or in, in, or to help their patients and, and clients, that once you start reading, you can't stop. So mm. um, that's where I am right now. I've been doing this for seven years, so. So exciting. for you,
0: just removing one food was the key to getting rid of all these symptoms. You
1: know, it was multiple foods. What happens with food sensitivities? Like most people, they start to not feel good, whether it's in their, you know, um, headaches or um, stomach issues. You know, we sort of now kind of try the dairy free, gluten free. A lot of people are starting to remove like soy or like a, more of a paleo diet. Like there are a lot of approaches, and so. It it wasn't just that it it turns out that soy and dairy and wheat are not my best foods, but also healthy foods can um, your body can stop recognizing healthy foods as healthy. So you could be positive or test positive for blueberries or salmon or cumin or parsley. Now the good thing about food sensitivities is that sometimes people reference them as intolerances, but they are immune reactions, but they are not IgE mediated, so they're not the anaphylactic um, acute reaction. They are slow. So they kind of sort of creep up on you. You wake up one day, you're like, whoa, how long have I been feeling this way? And why? And what happened? But once you restore digestion to the gut, you take out these foods, you let the body rest and heal, you let the immune cells, your immune system sort of calm down and be like, okay, there's nothing here to fight. Everything's good. You are able to bring back those foods. I'm never a proponent of long-term elimination plans. um, But the point is you calm the inflammation, you uh, restore digestion, you let the body heal, You give the body nutrients that repair the gut, and then you're able to enjoy a variety
0: of healthy foods again. You mentioned headaches, brain fog. These aren't symptoms that people might necessarily traditionally associate with the gut. What are the symptoms that you most commonly identify in people that you realize actually are connected to the gut that people may not even know yeah so the obvious
1: are stomach issues any stomach or bowel issues definitely you have a a, a gut related uh, condition but headaches uh, migraines can be um, it it could be food sensitivities related or could be to microbes or it, it, dysbiosis or imbalance in the gut. It could be inflammation, but headaches and migraines, um, brain fog, chronic fatigue, muscle and joint pain, uh, skin issues like eczema, itching, psoriasis, sometimes even um, anxiety. Now they're connecting the gut with the brain, so anxiety and depression, even things like congestion and coughing and uh, getting sick frequently. What Some of the people I work with, and, and they didn't have a stomach issue, but they were like always sick. They were always taking days off from work, congestion sneezing, and they start to work on their gut and they feel so much stronger afterwards.
0: I know that this is a rough guess, but in your estimation, how much of the population do you think are dealing with some kind of less than optimal gut state?
1: Yeah. I mean, that's a that's a difficult one to be able to get a number because even when we look at the statistics with IBS or irritable bowel syndrome, so it's not a disease really because there's no way to diagnose it. There's no structural problem. People with IBS, sometimes they go through colonoscopy and, and, and testing and there's really nothing structural wrong. There's no ulceration. And so they're giving this label of IBS, you have a syndrome, pretty much explain to yourself, your bowel is irritable, but really that doesn't help people so even that we know that um, you know maybe there's a um, I believe the 40% is people or actually more like there are people who have it don't seek medical help mm-hmm. so we are we're thinking that there are people who, who go to see their doctor to complain about these conditions but so many people with IBS don't even come so If you want to expand that, and I mentioned IBS because that's kind of like a Mm gut-related, but if we are to look at the whole population, a lot of people are not connecting their eczema or acne or their hair loss or, or any of these issues to the gut. And if you don't have a gut that's working, that's absorbing the nutrients, the vitamins, the minerals, you're really not benefiting from anything.
0: It can show up anywhere. So how do you know if your gut health is less than optimal? Some of these symptoms might be cropping up, but how do you know if it's actually connected to your gut? Um, What are some other signs that there might be something else going on?
1: Yeah, so so usually like I, I um, there are a lot of questionnaires, or you can kind of you know maybe it's worth a consult. One thing that's kind of tricky is to tell people don't self-diagnose. There's a lot of information that's available and that's great, and sometimes people tr- um, resort to online resources because they're not being heard by their doctors and their practitioners. But you know if you're having, for example, like if you're having diarrhea all the time, if you eat anything and you're bloated, I'm not talking about you eat pizza and you get bloated like from everything and anything that you eat. Um, constipation I talk about I talk about boop, bowel and poop issues all the time because that's really that's your gut it's normal like it's a normal function and uh, some a really people, good indicator of health yes too, right? and and I actually have it. a chart and I show it to people I'm like what does your poop look like does mm-hmm. it look like a banana it needs to look like a banana every single day if it mm-hmm. if um, the, the the shape and the color of it can tell you that whether it's healthy or not you know we want to get rid of the the toxins the byproducts the extra hormones all the byproducts of metabolism outside of the body. So if you're holding on to that waist and you're having a bowel movement like every, once every three days, that's not a good sign. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes, you know, one of the th- um, symptoms is like if you eat a little bit, po- a small portion and you start burping a lot or you start feeling like indigestion or food is sitting in, in your stomach like a rock, like these are just her terms that people tell me uh, that they use. Uh, if you can't go out on a vacation or trip or sightseeing in your town or anything without being worried about where the bathroom is, these are signs that, okay. Okay, this is not normal. This is something, um, you know. I had a patient tell me she had to go in the middle of the day buy a new pair of pants because hers wasn't buttoning uh, after lunch. So hmm. these are the things that okay, things are progressing. This is not normal, and there's something to do about it.
0: And what does ignoring even some of these very mild conditions lead to?
1: Yeah, I mean, we don't have, most people don't have an appreciation for the gut until it starts to go very downhill. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, you ignore it, a little bit of bloating now, a little bit of constipation, you know, down the road, it could be you start, you know, you stop tolerating foods one after the other. Definitely worked with people who can count seven foods only that they can eat. There was not a single vegetable or fruit they can tolerate. Again, that's not healthy because we want the vegetables, the fiber, the, the, Protein, the the vitamins the minerals, the antioxidants, and if everything makes you sick and you're bloated and you feel like you're gonna, um, you know, nauseated, then that's not a good sign. So we're talking about extreme food sensitivities. Uh, you know, if we think of the immune system is in the gut, and if you have an imbalanced, unhealthy gut, 80% of the immune system is there. So now you're becoming more prone to getting diseases, or you get the common cold so so quickly, or let's just say food poisoning. You don't have to travel overseas to get a food poisoning and you know two people can eat the same thing but somebody with a strong healthy gut will be okay and then someone with a you know an imbalanced gut will get sick for three four days if not longer and Mm -hmm. so we need to strengthen our our gut and um you know it helps us in so many ways if you're not uh, absorbing nutrients then all this organic healthy foods the supplements that you're getting you're just tossing them in the trash because because you're they're not being absorbed
0: Is there such thing as a normal amount of gas, skin issues, digestive upset, or are they all symptoms of a larger problem?
1: Um, I mean, it's (laughs) – so this is reminding me of a conversation with my friends. So a group of my friends and I, we have a chat group, and Mm -hmm. these conversations often come up, and it's like, oh, I'm feeling bloated or I'm gassy today or something like that. So, I mean, if it's an occasional thing, you know you overate and then your body couldn't handle it or you had a a bowl of bean soup or – um, I have a lot of friends, Pakistani, so there's like a dal and lentils. I'm mm-hmm. like, maybe that's a little bit too much and, and you need to reduce the portions. Uh, some people benefit from enzymes. But if it's a, if it's a daily thing, then that, that's when it becomes a problem. Mm-hmm. And, and another thing to add, it interferes with your lifestyle and the quality of life that you want to have. For some people, they need to reach rock bottom before they do something about it. And for some people, even if they're like, oh, this is a little uncomfortable, I don't like it. I want to optimize my health. I want to take my health to the next level. I don't want to settle for a little bit of discomfort. And there's always something we can improve about our health.
0: So let's talk about that. What are those things? I mean, we'll talk about some of the larger conditions a little bit later, but if you are in that state where you just want to optimize a little bit, where things aren't quite right, how do you start to improve? What are the what are the steps that you suggest? Yeah, absolutely. So we
1: know that um, the sugar is really bad for a lot of our body systems, including the digestive system and the immune system. So if you eat a lot of sugars and, and beverages that contain sugar, then that's a a, that's a first thing to remove. Uh, we know even artificial sweeteners like um, sucralose can affect the gut pH and cause an imbalance between the bacteria and the yeast in the gut. So taking these out of the, the your food, um, you know, the, your meal plans or your meals, um, eating wholesome, real foods, that's going to be really important. Sometimes in the beginning, if somebody's having gas and bloating, we may start to remove foods, uh, even things healthy, like, you know, I tell people the onions, the garlic may not be the best things for for your gut, at a certain point in time, mm-hmm. um, lentils and, and legumes and beans. If somebody wants to eat them, soak them overnight. We uh, get rid of the water. Cook them really well. Um, sometimes, actually, cooked vegetables are easier to tolerate than raw vegetables. And, and you know, having a, a mix and a balance of the two, um, good healthy protein. You know, in, in you know moderate amount. Like we want really a balanced diet. Mm-hmm. Um, nuts can create problems, um, especially if they have the the skin. So almond butter may be easier to tolerate than almonds. And, and one thing that a lot of people dive deep into the gut, they forget that the mouth is the first part of the digestive system. And sometimes chewing our food properly, taking 20 minutes to eat, um, swallowing, you know, are you swallowing? I, I tell people you need to be um, texture of baby food before you swallow the food. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's just kind of a few things that we can
0: start with in the beginning. What kind of foods or spices do you think that we're grossly underusing that could actually really help improve the gut? I know that we talked about some of the things to take out, but what are the things that we should be adding back in?
1: Yeah. So bone broth, a lot of, it's, it's, it's trendy now and that's a great thing, but you know, you back get in the on days, every street corner. yeah, uh, maybe in New York, not yeah. every street corner, not <laughs> every town, but you know, back in the days, people use the whole animal. We, they use the bones. I, I have vague memories of my family members gathering when it's a holiday and people were fighting for the bone marrow. Like they wanted to to suck the 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 content of what's inside. And so traditionally people cook the whole animal, they use all parts of it. Then they took the bones and they made soup and they made other stuff with the with the broth. And unfortunately or you know with with our lives with we are convenience, we're buying boneless, skinless everything. And so we're missing out on certain nutrients that are found in bone broth. So that is a great thing to incorporate. Um, one thing I'm starting to recommend and incorporate a lot is aloe. So we you know aloe vera plant is really, you know, most of us, think of it like if you have a sunburn let's put it on your skin but if you think that the gut is a continuation of your skin it's just inside and you don't see it and you can uh get the goo like that white gooey part and you can use it And traditionally in in tell us a little bit about
0: that you yeah. get the plant itself you get the stock yeah, and then so how you, do you get the white gooey part yeah, out? yeah
1: so so you get the plant you can buy it from the store you can buy the whole leaf uh if you grow it in your home that's great uh but you know we can start with that you want to soak it for 15 20 minutes so that they're um, the waxy the yellow uh we don't want the yellow part that can cause stomach irritation or diarrhea mm-hmm. but you soak it for 20 minutes and then you pretty much with a knife you take the skin out and then you're you, you trim it um and then you're left with a gooey white part and you can incorporate that in a smoothie and it doesn't have a flavor i actually have videos of my kids my kid i have three kids mm-hmm. and um i i uh i snuck it into a smoothie to see if they would taste it because <laughs> you know kids are like if they don't like something they'll tell you they, right. they won't like sh- hide that but they loved it they didn't they couldn't tell that there was something in it so that's always like they got the pass from the kids <laughs> uh, but you can also put it in ice cubes and then incorporate it in you know drinks like you can mix aloe with a little bit of pomegranate juice and mm-hmm. some ice and make like a fresh uh, summery drink as well too um, herbs and spices we know that herbs actually are they are they kill the microbes or they balance the gut flora and you know a lot of people are taking herbs in like supplement form but we know for food, they are anti-inflammatory, antimicrobials. So think like thyme and oregano and mint and, you know, peppermint and, um, you know, turmeric obviously gets a lot of attention. Mm -hmm. And, and, um, you know, just like I would say variety, like somebody asked me, like, what's your favorite one thing? It's very, very hard to give you just one thing mm-hmm. because it's the more ba- the more you add. And actually, there were studies showing that that just by increasing the number of food, people who ate 30 different vegetables and fruit, didn't matter what they were. They had a more diverse um, gut flora. Mm-hmm. So if you're stuck eating broccoli all the time, you know, it's good for you, but you don't want to eat the same thing every single day. You want to vary things and add more
0: color and texture to your meals. And what are some of the ways that you can incorporate more herbs and spices? You're talking about all these fresh herbs. How can people use them? Drink them? Throw them on food? What are some of your favorite ways to add them? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Uh, I come from a Middle Eastern
1: background, so like we we add so much flavor, like so much herbs and spices mm-hmm. to our food, so it's it comes natural. Um, but you can add to vegetables when you're roasting them. You when you make a stew, um, you know. Lamb, chicken, and beef are really cultural for us as foods. And so there's always a mix of allspice and cinnamon. Even we use cinnamon on red meats. Mm-hmm. Um, thyme is a big one, basil, oregano. Um, So it's just, you know, incorporating it in the main dish. And now we can also, like, drink – um, you can add mint – leaves to your tea. You can make mint tea, like without the actual black tea. Uh, you can add a cinnamon stick to your soups, to any beverage that you're making. Sometimes I even tell my patients to, um, if they can't have caffeine or tea, when we test them for food sensitivities, you can boil some water and add some like ginger, uh, ginger root and shred that and add a cinnamon stick and some lemon, a little bit of honey if you need a sweetener. And then you could have sort of like a nice warm drink in the evening or in the morning to start your or end your day with. So lots, lots of options.
0: So you grew up in Jordan. You've talked, if you've talked about um, some of the ways that you grew up and the way that you were eating growing up. I'm curious about um, about the way that you ate growing up and how that's the same or different from the way you eat now. How that affects your work with patients.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So. Um, Uh, at least overseas in in Jordan, a lot of countries is your main meal is earlier in the day. Mm -hmm. So three, when I, when I was in school, when I was young, we would eat our lunch at the hot meal was about two o'clock. We call that lunch. So it's always funny when I go and visit, it's like, wait, is it lunch, lunch, or is it your lunch or my dinner? (laughs) And then I was like, okay, the afternoon meal there. So, so people tend to eat their big meal earlier in the day. Uh, There's always like a little bit of rest. So think of like the European siesta, like there's a little bit of a, a, a little break, although that's also changing a lot of people are doing longer days more like what we have here mm-hmm. um, but it's also a lot of um, homemade meals like everybody uh, you know I grew up my mom made dinner every day like we and, and a lot of times people here as well too is we didn't eat out as much it was a very special occasion mm-hmm. uh, It was food that my grandmother made both my grandmothers were really good at cooking and then so like my dad has his dishes that his mom used to make so um, whenever we have like gatherings and family there's always like food as part of it and there's always a lot of food so um, you know it's it's really a big part of the culture but also the stress as well like you know that kind of goes into the gut health is um, you know a lot of people talk about Mediterranean diet or you know and what are the foods to eat but sometimes that's taken out of context because it's also the lifestyle it's like walking getting some fresh air it's the uh, family it's the connections between people it's uh, so so we can't just take the food from a culture and try to apply it without changing everything or a lot of things in our life that we know are not contributing to our health.
0: Well, let's talk about that for a minute um, and about the daily habits that people are doing that aren't great for their guts. And let's talk about stress and the stress and gut connection. I know that there's a lot of research around if you try and eat when you're stressed out, how you're absorbing your food, how you're digesting your food. Whereas if you eat when you're in a relaxed state, maybe when you're on vacation, you might have a totally different digestion experience. But can you talk about that connection between the gut and stress a bit?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And um, people tell me, my patients, like they're, they're, they travel, they're worried about like how they're going to eat and maintain their gut health. And they're like, wow, I have nothing, no symptoms. I ate, (laughs) I wasn't restricting, I wasn't like following a a, a specific plan. And and I'm like, there's, well, here, here we go. Now we, we, we know that stress is playing a big role in your gut health issues. What happens is, I mean, everybody, we heard about the stress, uh, the fight or flight and rest and digest. And so, you know, when we are in a stressful situation, the body's going to, the the, the blood is going to go to your muscles to your heart to your eyes so that you're alert so that you run for your life and it's going to shut down digestion it's going to shut down like um, hydrochloric acid production from the stomach gut motility so the contractions in the gut that push food down and, and, and promote a healthy digestion so uh, what happens is that we are constantly exposed to the stress whether it's from our work or environment or our political or economic or um, sometimes even the stress is internal and we don't know it so if you have a microbe or a pathogen in the gut. If you have an autoimmune activation and you don't know that it's existing, uh, poor habits, um, you know, poor diet, that's also a chronic stress. So we're carrying all these stressors and we don't always practice um uh, ways to de-stress, and, and we're not taking care of our bodies and, and our um, uh, brain, like our mental health as well, too. And so we're constantly shutting down digest- digestion. Um, so when when there's food not digested, it sits there in the gut. Now microbes start to eat that up. So they're going to start to eat all the fibers and, and even the good fibers and the sugar. And they are starting to um, get larger in population. And you know, with bloating, think of a balloon, and your gut is like the balloon, and now the bacteria is eating eating the fiber, is eating the sugars and the starches, and now the balloon is, is, is blowing. And that, that, that pain is just air from the hydrogen, methane, and other gases being produced in the gut. And now the, the bowels are distended, you're starting to feel um, you know, all, all the GI issues, and that can cause constipation and diarrhea as well. So that's how stress starts things. It also reduces your immune system. Um, so you're more prone to getting infected by microbes, or you're not able to fight the microbes as much.
0: And what about some of the other habits that people are perhaps partaking in? Things like alcohol, like caffeine, um, even sparkling water. Like let's, let's go through some of these. What are the things that people are doing on a daily basis that may not be optimal for our guts?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, so let's start with the order. So like alcohol, we you know, can cause um, sensitivity in the stomach or ulceration in the stomach. It interferes with some of the absorption of minerals and, and vitamins. And so, you know, some people subscribe to drink red wine for heart health, but even if you look at the American Heart Association publications, they tell you to not start drinking if you don't drink and there is a limit to how much you drink. So it's also putting into perspective you're going to drink wine. It's not two glasses every single day. It's it's an occasional basis and you can get the same benefits from Incorporating uh, grape juice and, and red grape juice, and um, as well too. Um, so that's you know one thing. Sparkling water, um, you know, some people feel it actually helps if there is a little bit of indigestion. But again, the, the gases. If you're already bloated and you're in digesting, not digesting properly, all this can can create more of the gas and the pressure inside the gut. Um, caffeine is is um, actually can can help some people. For others, it can cause them to be more anxious and jittery, and then maybe it can affect the gut in that way. Mm -hmm. But we're also seeing some people, um, leaky gut improving when people incorporate caffeine. So it's, I think caffeine is, there's maybe a genetic component or different people metabolize caffeine differently. So I think it's going to have to be individual.
0: What about eating and drinking at the same time or or drinking cold beverages?
1: Yes. So I don't recommend that people drink Uh, any beverage, or maybe a little bit, like few sips is okay, but if you've heard that you need to get, or you're planning on getting 10 cups of water in your day, you know, you shouldn't be drinking three cups along with your meal. Because what happens is that you've got water, you've got the meal, and now the stomach is trying to to digest all that. A lot of people are walking with um, hypochlorohydra, which is not having enough hydrochloric acid in their stomach. So just to give you the background, the stomach is going to produce hydrochloric acid to activate pepsin enzyme, which starts digesting proteins. And so when we have more volume between the water and the liquid, that gets diluted, between, and the enzymes get diluted, and now your stomach is not really digesting protein properly and that could uh, create kind of like a bottleneck in the gut in the the stomach and so trying I tell people try to get your beverages 30 minutes before 30 minutes after and then just if you need to take a medication or supplement just keep it to the minimal amount
0: um, so that we don't disrupt digestion. That's so interesting. So how do you recommend that people, like one, if you're going to guzzle a lot of water <laughs> yeah. and you're trying, you're either really thirsty or you're trying to get up to your 10 glasses a day, what time of day do you do that? Is that as soon as you wake up? Is that just making sure that you're spacing it out between meals?
1: Yeah. I mean, as soon as you wake up is a great idea because you've been fasting or, you know, for at least hopefully 12 hours overnight. So that's mm-hmm. a great way to start your day. You're hydrating, put pump some energy in your body. We want to drink earlier in the day. So you don't want to, you know, you don't want seven o'clock to come and you're like, oh, I only had three cups of water because then you're going to end up using the bathroom at night so we don't want to disrupt sleep as well so trying to get it earlier in the day as much as possible and so like if you drink two cups in the morning and then sometimes i tell people set timers in between uh, you know, after lunch or after your breakfast or after lunch, or sometimes if you forget, you know, you drink two cups of water now, just set a timer for another hour or two hours. And then when the timer goes off, go drink some more water. And so they're, you know, finding out why you forget, if some people tend to forget, and uh, maybe having it visual, like buying a very large glass refillable water bottle that's in next to your desk that you just go back and, and drink as much as you can, but in between the meals.
0: Let's talk about some holistic solutions for some of the most common things. So when we're talking about bloating, when we're talking about indigestion, assuming that these are occasional, that it's not a chronic everyday problem, what are ways that you recommend that people deal with those?
1: Yeah, so there are things that can definitely help with digestion. So if you just finish the meal, um, you know, using things like digestive bitters that you can catch up like right after your meal, that they would stimulate digestion, muscle, motil- digestive motility. And there are lots of, you know, options that are available. Um, if that tends to happen a lot, maybe kind of starting your meal with digestive enzymes, which is supplying your body with outside enzymes that can help support your um, your gut. And there are certain uh, plants and herbals that help bind to the gases in the gut um, that you can utilize, but also things like fennel, chamomile, teas. Um, you know, just sometimes black or green tea can help just kind of ease the digestion. These are just some of the things that would help. Sometimes people, I do recommend like activated charcoal, but not that's not something that you want to do on daily basis. It's like a very occasional, you shouldn't be taking it like... Daily for a whole week, more than a week. Uh, but what that does it if you have extra gases, what it or anything really in the gut that's not making you feel good, uh, activated charcoal works like a sponge, and then it absorbs everything, and then it doesn't get absorbed itself. We can ju- we get rid of it in our stool. So that's another you know quick remedy if somebody's traveling and want to grab something just in case for those emergencies.
0: Let's talk about some of the buzzwords that are coming up in the health world as it relates to gut intermittent fasting, what do you think about for gut health? Thumbs up, thumbs down? I think thumbs up, for sure. Well for the most part
1: and you know sometimes how do you define exactly that's what (laughs) I want to say so usually I tell people you know start with 12 hours if you and see how that goes and and it shouldn't be very difficult to finish eating dinner at 7 and then not have anything until 7 a.m you can drink water that's fine so 12 hours should shouldn't be difficult and then you work your way up it's sort of it's not an all or nothing like that's great, you got twelve, can you do thirteen hours? Can you do fourteen hours? So typically most people or have heard of the sixteen eight, which is you fast for sixteen hours and you eat for eight hours. And if somebody can can make sixteen hours, that's that's great. And and what that does, it it's it really affects hormones and insulin and, and cortisol, but it also helps the gut
0: give the Digestive tract a break, um, so that's one thing I do recommend. And do you recommend it as an ongoing daily habit, or do you recommend it in limited periods when you're trying to get your gut back into a state of health? Yeah, I, I say just see how that makes
1: you feel. Some people incorporate that as a daily thing. Uh, turns out that maybe we don't all need to eat breakfast every day, and maybe breakfast is not the most important meal in the day. So, um, you know, if if that goes well with our lifestyle and and they can get started, and you know, you can have a cup of coffee with intermittent fasting so a lot of people like you know get their coffee they start working on something they're distracted before they know it it's 10 30 11 and i'm like well here you go here's your intermittent fasting (laughs) so so i think you know but if that's stressful i think that's when i say it depends if it's stressful like if you're stressing out about it and then as you're always constantly thinking of food and when is my next meal then that stress becomes uh negates the benefits like it becomes a problem itself and so if you're like running around after your kids or if you have a stressful job, or if you have a lot of, you know, you're not getting enough sleep, then maybe intermittent fasting is not the best thing. So we always have to think of how that's affecting the person. And um, and also for the gut, if you don't mind me sharing, is that in addition to intermittent fasting, it's also giving your gut a break in between your meals. So a lot of us um, are eating grazing, right? Like you you eat, you can eat in the mall, you can eat in the movie theater, you can eat pretty much everywhere. And so there's no time where we close the kitchen and mm-hmm. we used to eat a meal and then get out of the kitchen now our kitchen the center of the house or the activity uh, which is great right we, we make beautiful kitchens now <laughs> but how is that affecting our health so what happens is that after you finish eating so the same muscle contractions that pu- push food down the digestive tract when you're done eating those muscles will start a cleaning uh, sweeping motion so it takes two hours, but sometimes three for some people, especially if they're constipated, they have slow gut motility. So let's just say three hours. And I I tell people, this is kind of like you have a lot of crumbs on the floor and you're trying to sweep it and then your kids run around and then distribute it again. You have to start all over. So Mm -hmm. what happens is that every time you eat, eating is those kids running around and now you have to restart. So the gut starts the cleaning motion from the stomach and it doesn't really reach the end of the small intestine. So if we are imagining the gut, all of the byproducts, the food that wasn't digested, bacteria that are dead or fermenting our food, we really need to get rid of it to push it to the, to the large intestine so that it goes into waste, but it just sits there in the gut. So if we're not giving the gut breaks and, and, you know, three hours in between our meals and we never finish that cleaning motion, and now we're finding that's connected to SIBO or small intestinal bacterial overgrowth and other digestive issues.
0: So is the worst thing that you can do even have some small bits of food because all of that is restarting it? Like even uh, if you just have a little bit, just a little nibble, I think a lot of people yeah, will do that too. Yeah, just, you know, I'm, just gonna I'm grab the small thing.
1: Yeah, I, when I work with people, anything, I was like, you know what? Put your meals into like put a schedule. Roughly, I mean, we don't need to live by a schedule, but if you're going to have your first meal at 11, then you have something by 2, something at 4, and then something at 7, and that kind of makes up like 3 hours plus or minus in between each meal. But yeah, like those little nibbles or bites or grazes, you know, they don't actually help you stay full or satiated. So they're not even good whether you want to lose weight or for the insulin response. That means, you know, most of us are not nibbling on like protein foods or nibbling on snacks and crackers. And, and so every time you eat, your body's also producing insulin. And then we go into the insulin and the hormones and the weight loss and diabetes and prediabetes. So that's not good for other parts of the body as well, too.
0: What about um, keto?
1: Yeah, so keto is interesting for me. I tried it myself, and I did last it two weeks, and it wasn't it wasn't a good fit. My husband loved it. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not against it if people love to do it, but I also have to say I have a, my practice. I have three kids. I, I'm just you know I was under a lot of life stress that it just wasn't a, the right thing for me. And so mm-hmm. I give that example to people is that you know give it a try. I also see some women who do it and they love it. If it makes you feel good, then that's great. Um, so other patients
0: you. Recommend it to for certain yeah I or mean gut
1: conditions? for 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 like we know that keto is you know for epilepsy for neurological issues which is, doesn't tend to be my biggest population that I work with um, but we know that's documented by research and, and the benefit of preventing seizures is really really important so that's when it's really been most documented now a lot of, interesting thing with keto and gut is that there are some studies that are showing that keto diets are not the best for your gut especially if you have intestinal permeability and leaky gut, and that we actually uh, can can increase um, some of the uh, absorption of the endotoxins that are in the gut when we are on a keto when someone is on a keto diet and so I think there are that when those studies came out a lot of people were kind of disappointed because now keto is healthy everyone's trying to do it and now we're like wait a minute maybe it's not so great for our gut We know for sure that like vegeta- um, vegetables certain prebiotic fibers are really important for the gut so if we take these out when we're doing a keto diet uh, then we're potentially, doing something that isn't great. So I think first for someone like, you know, I say try it. Some people have a lot of bloating and, and indigestion and they do keto and they feel better. One of the things that may be beneficial is that, okay, and then you've had bacteria fermenting all this fiber and now it's not fermenting. The question is what's in your gut that wasn't responding well and then maybe there's an imbalance in there. So the keto, I don't see it as an Endpoint. I see it as a way to kind of discover yourself and what's going on inside your body.
0: What about histamine intolerance and low histamine diets?
1: Yeah. So histamine is another um, important one. It is is under diagnosed in a lot of people with histamine issues. Like they're they're. They come with a lot of symptoms, and sometimes they're not severe, and they mainly think that, oh, it's just allergies, and they tell me, oh, I've always had allergies, and then we start working on their gut, and, you know, histamine is a compound that's released by immune cells, and it's in a time of stress, so the immune system sees that there's something off or something going on, and it starts to attack that by releasing histamine. So, yes, there are environmental allergies and, and pollen and all that stuff, but there are other stuff related to our food, so the microbes growing in the gut. So some people with histamine may have uh, flushing in their skin or itchy skin, you know, red face, um, irregular heartbeat or increased heart rate. They feel warm very quickly or suddenly sort of like a hot flash, um, stomach pain, diarrhea, because what histamine does, it actually promotes muscle contraction. So that's when we see like the diarrhea. Uh, women menstruating, they have uh, worse uh, menstrual cramps because the uterus is contracting as well too. Sometimes joint and muscle pain. So it's like all these random things that are happening. And you know, I do have a chart and you know, you can mostly look, we have the article as well on histamine is Mm -hmm. you can see all the symptoms and the more you kind of check uh, there's there's nearly not a test to check for histamine that is really accurate, and the best thing if you suspect if you're like oh I'm like I'm checking few of these symptoms is to follow a low histamine diet for two weeks, and then uh, see if that makes you feel better. If you're less congested, oh and congestion of course congestion, post nasal drip, coughing, uh, that's a histamine issue. So if you're starting to feel better, then maybe that is one of the things that are going on. But again with histamine, like that's an indication that there may be something deeper happening.
0: And what about silent reflux?
1: Yeah, so silent reflux, that's kind of interesting that we're talking about them back to back because, <laughs> you know, with, with histamine, there's cough, uh, uh, post-nasal drip and congestion and sneezing. Um, with silent reflux, we're also kind of in the same area. So maybe coughing, trouble swallowing, pain in the throat, um, hoarseness in the voice, sometimes ear pain. And so if we think of oh, silent reflux is pretty much... It starts with acid reflux, so you have the stomach and and parts of the stomach juices are refluxing up, uh, which include hydrochloric acid and some pepsin enzyme that's found in the stomach. So if you think of of Pac-Man, you know, remember the, (laughs) the game? So think of this as the pepsin, and now it's meant to stay in the stomach, and it's eating the food. It's breaking down the food, which is great. Our stomach is lined. It's protected from that enzyme. Now the enzyme starts to go to the esophagus, and now it's eating the lining of the esophagus, and... That's obviously not a good thing. It's it can cause ulceration, it can cause irritation and pain, and so um, I was reading. Um, you know, some articles are showing that you know it can also be gases going up. So maybe you don't feel the heartburn, and they call it reflux because you maybe you don't feel the acidity coming. But once there's a little bit of hydrochloric acid and pepsin in the esophagus, it can travel up to the throat. And kind of get ingrained in the lining of the throat and esophagus and so um, if you're starting to feel that these are some of your symptoms um, you know some people like don't pay attention but it's like your voice is changing or you can't sleep unless you have the the pillow elevated or your bed reclined uh, or certain foods as they pass through the throat you're not able to process them sometimes people say I have trouble um, swallowing. Things are stuck in my throat. These are all could be signs of uh, refl- acid reflux or, or it's not, you know, they don't call it GERD or acid reflux. They're calling it silent reflux. And it's definitely worth investigating and trying to do whether it's diet and some supplements or also getting a consult with the ENT doctor just to kind of make sure that it's not, nothing th- serious.
0: Now, let's talk a bit about um, some of the more complex cases. We started to get into it, but I know that um, probably a lot of your practice doesn't deal with people who have the occasional <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, upset, yeah. but really, you know, people that are dealing with autoimmune conditions, severe reflux, GERD, etc. So can you talk to us a little bit about how you start to treat those patients? What are, I know that each one obviously has a whole protocol, but um, what are some common things that you do? What are some common tests that you recommend? Um, and what is, what is the way that you start to approach some of these more complex? issues. Yeah, absolutely.
1: So one of the things I tend
0: to do with my patients, and, and uh, it's really important, is to, t- to try to
1: put a timeline. Like, when did this happen? Did you, were you the kind of person who's always um, constipated? Or some people tell me, oh, everybody in my family jokes that I have a sensitive stomach, or or I always stop at the bathroom when everyone is at an outing, and I'm the only one. Or sometimes people say the first day in the job, and they had a lunch party, and then they got sick. And so after food poisoning, you could actually have a uh, it triggers something in the gut or then the motility and, and, and these are important things. So kind of helps us put the picture together. And so there are lots of, um, you know, things. So now there are a lot of um, diets that we can incorporate. So we know that there's the low FODMAPS diet, there is the SCD diet. Sometimes like, you know, it's a combination and, and it's really important to look at, you know, if somebody, you know, is trying to do something, um, you know, what are you willing to do? And do you need to follow? I mean, ideally we follow the plan at least for two weeks. I tell someone, let's let's be strict for two weeks and to see like if we're going to go, let's go all out and do it 100% and then test and see how how that's going to go. Um, we have like, you know, for somebody who doesn't do any, you know, doesn't have access to testing, I'll, I'll talk about testing. But, you know, we have some of these diets. We have a low acid diet. You know, I incorporate low acid with also low fermentable so like combination um, because I know if there is an extra gases being produced in the intestine, these are going to create pressure and, and on the stomach and then the stomach content can um, splash up. So we know that the acid reflux, a lot of times people feel like GERD or acid reflux is one condition whereas IBS is not. But actually there's a percentage of people, it's a high percentage of um, that they are, happen in the same person. So mm. the whole gut is really connected. Uh, we know like for Crohn's the SCD diet has been, um, you know, some research on that. I would say definitely remove gluten. Remove gluten, remove all grains, maybe incorporate a paleo diet to see how your body responds We have like whole 30 that, you know, some people respond to that as well. Autoimmune, paleo, AIP diet. So, you know, try something on your own and see how your body responds. And a lot of times there is an improvement, whether it's 30% or 50% or 80%, but that's something to try. Now, when I work individually with people, the people I work with, they tend to have tried these diets and they are... They either didn't get um, any results or they're like, okay, I'm feeling 50% better or mostly better, but there's something else. So what I do, I incorporate food sensitivity testing. Um, So I incorporate mediator release testing, which is looking at uh, not necessarily IgG reactions, but looking at type 3 and type 4 hypersensitivity, and then I custom a plan for for them. So there are so many times when I put people on a common gut diet, and turns out that they are sensitive to blueberries and strawberries and salmon and things that are allowed on that diet, and they actually, while we were waiting for the results, uh, for the, the 10 days that we were waiting for the results, they felt worse because they ended up eating more of these foods. So, and, and I reason really, I share this is just to tell people, is like, if one diet didn't work, it didn't mean that your body is not fixable but we just you haven't found the answer the right answer for you yet and we're just gotta uh, look a little bit deeper. Um, you know, I incorporate stool testing as well. So there are a lot of different stool tests, and there are traditional stool tests which are not looking at the new DNA analysis technology. And um, so I incorporate the GI map in my practice, and we're looking at the good bacteria, the bad bacteria. The um, there's H. pylori, there's parasite. There are a lot of things that you know some of those tests incorporate, and then we're balancing things out with um, you know maybe making some changes to the diet or incorporating certain plant botanicals, herbals, or Enzymes. Now, my background, I'm a dietitian, so I also, like, when I look at this, sometimes I'm the one who's telling the patient, I need you to go see your gastroenterologist. So some of them are not even seeking that help. And we're like, okay, maybe there's something more serious going on. So it always happens with collaboration and letting the patient know, like, okay, here are some of the options and, and what you can do with integrative nutrition and diet and lifestyle and, and when is a good idea to actually go seek medical help.
0: And how do you – it sounds like um, you're really identifying triggers through a lot of testing and through the removal of – foods and just trying to figure out what it is but how do you recommend that people are identifying the triggers themselves like are there ways that people once they start reintroducing food or like how do you know which of those things are your triggers especially if you're not if you don't have access to all of these kinds of tests
1: yeah so let's just say you pick you know the low FODMAPs diet so it's uh FODMAP F-O-D-M-A-P because that's um you know, a lot of doctors, there's a lot of research on it for IBS and a lot of doctors are recommending that. So, you know, you could follow that plan for two weeks and see how you do. I'd recommend that you sort of have um, some assessment or maybe rank your symptoms. If you are having, let's just say someone has bloating and stomach pain and brain fog, rank them maybe from one through four um, based on severity and intensity. And, you know, do that because we forget, we forget how we felt two weeks ago. Mm -hmm. We forget what we eat like a day ago. And so I say rank your symptoms and then do the plan. There are lots of recipes and, uh, you know, I do have some, uh, you know, you can research online, Google, Pinterest, lots of options, and then try to follow it to the T and then rank your symptoms again. And while you do that, keep a food diary. So you want to track how much you're eating, what, you, what you're eating and how much. Because a lot of those diets, it's like a bucket. If you eat a little bit of something, it's fine. But if you load everything, if you have pasta, which has wheat, and then you add um, maybe a lot of butter and cheese, and you add a lot of garlic and onion, and then you throw some you know mushrooms with it, right? That's a typical meal. But a lot of those foods are fermentable carbohydrates that are going to trigger up. And, and you add like Coke or a beverage to that, mm-hmm. then that's going to cause stomach issues so what you're eating how much you're eating um, at the time you had the symptom um, and the time you had the meal, and I also put, tell people track how much you're drinking, what you're drinking, any supplements you're taking. Um, sometimes track outside environments. So you got to, you had a uh, an upsetting conversation with your coworker or your boss today, or sometimes for people with migraines and headaches, there was a thunderstorm because we know pressure changes affect the headaches and migraines. So hmm. put a column for like other like other things that you didn't have a good night's sleep that day that may be interfering and causing symptoms. It is really difficult to analyze food diaries, but you got to start somewhere, and, and it's just data. Like we're mm-hmm. trying to look at pure data.
0: Right. I'd like to talk about the psychology of this for a minute, because um, of course, a part of what you offer people is a guide through their healing journey, and I'm just curious about this because for so many of us, food is emotional, and. It's very difficult for people to overcome those ties with food, and when you're saying to go on a limited diet, I know that that's not the plan ultimately, but still, how do you encourage people to really stick with the protocol, to stick with eliminating foods that they might love, and to then develop a diet in the future that is one that's good for their health, that's good for their gut?
1: Mm -hmm. yeah i mean that's a that's a hard one for sure and i never deny the connection of food with our emotions with our you know even coming from a middle eastern background like you know, food is part of a culture, it's part of who I am. So to tell me, like, oh, I can't eat bread again, I was like, everything we do has wheat in it. So it's like, okay, how can we incorporate that? So I know what that feels like. And so I find that, um, you know, it's hard to make a generalization, but people from ethnic backgrounds, they, t- you know, the food is part of, you know, coming here, like we're all a mix of people. So sometimes our food, our clothes are part of our culture. So it's, there, there's definitely that, that you know, kind of understanding that and, and respecting people's uh, choices, but a lot of times, you know, when people reach rock bottom, a lot of them, they, they're they ready. They're ready to do whatever mm-hmm. it takes because they're in pain and they're suffering. And mm-hmm. a lot of them are already eating a handful of foods anyway. So it's not really eliminating more, it's just kind of guiding them through better choices. Also understanding, like, let's just say someone didn't grow up eating healthy and now they have to kind of rewire their brain and mm-hmm. their habits and it doesn't happen overnight. And you, it's not all or nothing, black or white. Like you, you can make mistakes and that's fine. And, and the next day, you know, it's it's a learning experience. It's it's kind of like when, when kids start to walk, they don't just get up and walk, they, <laughs> they learn. And we cheer them on and we're, you know, you know, I, I tell someone, like if your uh, child is doing a math problem and they don't get it right, you don't. You're not harsh on them. You tell them it's okay. You keep going. You show them the way. So, the voices, the 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 conversation, the things that they're telling themselves is really important to be gentle and nurturing to themselves. Um, also mindset is if you think the diet will work it will work if you think it will not work it will not work mm-hmm. and so we know there's a lot of uh, research on and I'm not the expert on that In in, in our thoughts and our what we're telling ourselves and in, in the conversation in our heads and so you know take it one day at a time um, look at the long-term goal as opposed to the immediate uh, reward because the immediate reward goes away really quickly whereas a long-term reward is is more beneficial so it definitely helps when we have a plan when they are seeing how we're progressing it's definitely easier when you're working with a practitioner or a coach or a dietitian or somebody who's holding you accountable supporting and cheering you so get that support whatever people find it
0: now, I know that um, after this podcast, there'll be a lot of people who are curious to work with you or with someone like you, but um, for people that don't have access to that kind of really personalized level of care, what are things that you recommend for people that might have a traditional doctor or are trying to do it on their own? What are ways that, um, that people who you know, don't have that kind of extra level of care um, can start to get a hold on their own gut issues?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I think we all have to be advocates for our own health. Um knowledge is accessible. There's a lot of information. You know, looking at information from reputable sources, of course, and you know, having a second opinion, a third opinion. So if you read something in one article there in one place, verify it and, and because there's Almost always, for every opinion, there's another <laughs> opposite opinion. So just kind of, you know, trying to get to, to that as much as possible. You know, when you're having a conversation with your doctor, tell them what you're doing. Um, you know, if you are going to see a GI doctor or, um, you know, your primary care doctor, do your homework kind of before. So, for example, if you have bloating, try one of those diets because the doctor may tell you go home and try this diet, come back next month. Do that before you go. Say, you know, listen, I did this. Here's my food diary. Here's my food record what else could be going on with me and sort of, um, you know, advocate for them to to just kind of pay attention. You know, I ask for people to, to get their labs done and, you know, maybe it's not, I mean, it's actually is related for the gut. Like when we're looking at thyroid health, thyroid stimulates, T3 stimulates the, Uh, every cell in our body. So when we have low thyroid function, now the gut is slowing down, kind of our metabolism slows down, the the digestive tract. And so we find a Mm -hmm. lot of people with bloating and constipation, low hydrochloric acid with thyroid issues. So if you suspect that... You know, doctors tend to order TSH, ask for free T3, free T4, ask them to, to even check for antibodies, even though you don't have a family history of it, even though your TSH is normal, you know, ask them for the extra labs. Um, so that's some of the things I always encourage my patients to just to, to read and um, good doctors like educated patients. And if <laughs> your doctor is really not listening to you, you know, look for a second opinion.
0: You've mentioned that you're a mom. You have three little boys. Yeah. Um, Yeah. How do you teach good, healthy gut habits to them? How do you get your kids to eat all the good things for them?
1: Yeah. Um, We do our best. And disclaimer that my kids don't eat as well as I would like them to eat. (laughs) But it's also... You know, I'm not food policing anyone, um, especially them. So, you know, we try to incorporate healthy foods. You know, the things that they don't know is like getting grass fed meats and like organic, at least the the dirty dozen and organic dairy. I'm not a proponent of good or bad foods and and don't eat this for kids just because I I don't want that impression. And they, you know, they're thankfully have good health. We don't need to. Go that route. You know, I always tell them you got to balance all the anything that you eat. You got to balance it with some vegetables and fruits. So your body needs to have equal amounts. Uh, they're very they're very sporty. They're into sports and athletics. So that's really a good thing. Um, so we try to you know notice that you know with kids. Don't ask them, just cut up some vegetables and fruit and offer it, and they'll just eat it. If you ask, hey, do you want an apple? No. Um, So these are the things um, we always have a conversation. So I I used to do more videos online, but I always have them come in and, like, uh, you know, take some videos with me. But, you know, we try to cook together as a family. We do our best to eat family. So we tend to eat dinner as a family together. And even if they're not eating exactly the way I love them to eat, I just having that family environment and seeing the food. Food. If, if one person chooses to not eat the vegetables, they know these exist, they see them, and hopefully one day they will. So just incorporating that, having that part of the conversation
0: on a daily basis. And I imagine that's hard with growing children who are very into sports and need to eat a lot. The volume of food yeah. surprises me sometimes. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, how do you feed them enough and enough healthy foods? Because I think that's often when you turn to, oh, just grab a pizza, or yeah, I can't believe the, the amount of food that you need. Or... Yeah,
1: well, I'm not there yet. My oldest <laughs> is not, ele- he'll be 11 and i so I'm not in the teenage years and having three boys. I hear stories of moms, they had like a separate freezer for their for their boys. So I don't know what that looks like. Um, but, you know, some things that, you know, if you teach basic things, right, it, you could grill some chicken and if you can pre-season some chicken breast or, you know, whatever, chicken drumsticks, that's fine. I'm actually like, okay with the, the dark meat because if you get an organic or um, pasture fed and you use your own spices and your oils and it's okay. Like, we don't have to be paranoid about everything, with the food but you know you teach them how to make a salad or how to roast some vegetables you can even get frozen vegetables and steam them so if they see you doing it it doesn't have to be fancy cooking Mm -hmm. they sort of start to we talk about like where's the vegetable in your plate like what vegetable are you gonna eat with your lunch or 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 dinner so I don't have the answer of how am I gonna feed them but maybe ask me in five years and
0: (laughs) hopefully I've figured it out well teaching them how to eat sounds like a great start right they can take care of themselves
1: well and, and you know cooking is not like a um, gender-specific skill. It's a life skill. Like, you know, my brother was single and, you know, got his master's, and he was single living alone, and he learned how to cook, and he'd send me pictures of his meals. And I was like, that's pretty awesome. It's kind of cool. So, yeah. Absolutely.
0: I don't know how my family would survive if my husband didn't do at least half the cooking. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. Um, What gets you excited in the morning? Mm, Um. I mean, a lot of things, a lot of
1: great things happen to us and we're not always seeing them but you know just you know i've been able to create a work life balance that i feel good about i have my own practice i can take time for vacation i can go visit my family overseas i can you know block the day and then go attend a publishing party at my kid's school <laughs> so just being knowing that i was able to to figure out a way that works you know to, to be there for my kids but also to be there for my patients so being able to teach someone something new every day uh you know educating sometimes people you know as we talk like they don't realize that all their acne is related to their gut and they suddenly you know they come across an article such as on mind body green or any other place where they're like oh you know starts the path uh to a journey maybe to health so knowing that you can help someone that you can teach someone you know the things i hear from my patients i had a patient who you know was sick for a few years and um she's actually a friend and i knew i could help her but sometimes it's hard to 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 tell people that like, come work with me but she was on a walker she's in 40 some and she ended up with a walker she has some sort of autoimmune issue they can't figure it out and now um I saw her last time she had been without a walker for two weeks and you think for for someone to to know that we can have that impact you know we can't I can't help everyone but if I can teach in in my in in any if this one had helped someone now they can do something better they can research something a little bit more I Mm -hmm. mean that's what excites me that's that's like the highlight of my day
0: so Mm -hmm. yeah and what keeps you up at night
1: yeah, um, I'm a type A, so <laughs> I don't think it's a bad thing. I think that type A can can help you do a lot of things, but definitely we're harder on ourselves sometimes. And so I'm also the oldest sibling of four, so uh, worrying about other people, worrying about what needs to be done sometimes, whether it's for my patients or for my family or for a friend. Um, so just kind of learning how to put that in paper so I can <laughs>
0: shut down my brain and sleep. Yeah. <laughs> What advice would you give to your 20-year-old self?
1: Mm. Um, Stop worrying about what other people think. Just do what you believe in. And... um yeah having kids also helps me have better sense of humor as well too because sometimes <laughs> you want to cry, but it's it's better to laugh because that's um, and and they're just um you know being working with children, whether it's your own or other or just being surrounded, there's a lot of innocence in that and they laugh about anything and everything but my twenty year old was not as brave as my Current version.
0: (laughs) Nora, thank you so much for being here. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It was a great conversation. Thank you for sharing all this wonderful information. Mm